Wonderful. Welcome everybody to our third and hopefully last online political psychology meeting. Uh, we have a beautiful program for you uh, today. And um, first, however, I just want to say how sad we are to not see you in person. We were really looking forward to this. Um, really looking forward to the drinks, especially afterwards. So uh, next time, I think we need to make sure that we do that first and foremost. Maybe we should start with that next time. Uh, but for now, uh, we will make do. Thankfully, the, the talks that we have lined up for you uh, do uh, compensate uh, for the lack of uh, personal interaction. Uh, and our first speaker today is Yassine Koch uh, from the University of Groningen, who will tell us about how apology doesn't kill the guilt. I'm just going to give the floor to you, Yassine. Okay. Um, thank you, Yannicka. I'm going to share my slides and we'll start. Talking about this, um, just give me a heads up that this is working all fine. Yes, and I should say, of course, in this interdisciplinary environment that Yassine is a social and organizational psychologist. Yes. So that's probably the perspective that we'll be hearing from. Yes. Um, first of all, thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's my pleasure to be talking about uh, my research, but at the same time, I was tricked to give this talk because uh, I was told that it was going to be in person and uh, right now I'm doing this online which I'm not uh, enjoying as much as I would but uh, Joannika kind of said she was sorry and apologized and I know that apologies don't kill the guilt so hopefully next time we will really get those drinks that we were promised. <laughs> um, before I make more fun um, I want to um, mentioned that this is a project that was led by my uh, bachelor thesis student Bastian Weitz uh, from, uh, uh, from Germany who was here in Groningen last year and currently uh, I uh, so currently he is doing a pre-doc uh, position at Stanford University with Michelle Gelfand and uh, this was his bachelor thesis and uh, we are uh, continuing this project uh, to make it something bigger and larger and uh, my um, partner in crime, Joel Anderson, is also in involved. Um, so, oops. Okay, so this is gonna be a very uh, basic uh, theoretical introduction uh, for me to tell you, but uh, when Bastin and I were having cocktails and talking about what kind of research we can do for his bachelor thesis, uh, we were talking mostly from privilege uh, literature and how privilege awareness is related to uh, guilt for advantage group members and in some cases also how this guilt is related to collective action support. Um, we, were, uh, we were interested in uh, the majority and that's typically very different than the research that I normally do because majority should deal with their own stuff themselves. I don't really want to or need to help them. Uh, but uh, Basin is a majority member, so we thought that maybe we should do something on term in terms of allyship and majority. Um, that's why we were looking at many different literatures, and uh, when we started looking more into the collective uh, apology literature, most of the things that we encountered, maybe we missed some of the literature, but most of the things that picked our attention were uh, whether um, collective apologies were issued and in which manner they were issued and then what kind of forgiveness this was 
uh, this received from the disadvantaged group membership. And a lot of research comes from Australia uh, with uh, stuff on the, uh, on the Aboriginal community and the apologies issued by the politicians and you know whether there's empathy in the apology or whether there are other patterns that make people uh, issue forgiveness or accept that this apology is legitimate. But what we realize that um, there is not much that looks at what happens after advantage group members apologize. And this was the thing that we picked our attention and then we said we can focus on this. And the whole point was actually uh, really what happens to perpetrators or people who belong to the perpetrator group after apologizing. Um, so these are slides from my student. This is the first time I'm giving this talk. Uh, this is his, uh, his reasoning uh, simplified. And I made simplified in italics because um, I don't think this is necessarily simplified uh, with a lot of boxes, as you see here. Uh, but he would uh, talk about this by saying, uh, you know, in a playground, child A steals a toy from child B and child B cries and the parents scold child A. So there are different reactions the child A can give at this uh, point. Uh, there could be a defensive reaction and then child A can also cry or scream or try to defend themselves, but at the same time, child A can also feel bad about stealing the toy. So this is the part that we kind of think about guilt and guilt induction from a transgression. And then afterwards, child A can um, give the toy back and apologize. So engage in a pro-social action. But what happens afterwards? So child A feels good about himself or herself. And uh, this causes some sort of reaction about the guilt that they felt but what happens afterwards? So we realize that this is really uh, missing in the collective apology literature. And then this model uh, transferred into what we were thinking is uh, when transgression happens, uh, this transgression can uh, threaten the identity of the advantage groups. And then similarly, they can have some defensive reaction and um, you, know, you would be probably familiar with the 3D model of Eric Knowles and others are talking about, you know, uh, defense, uh, sorry, uh, deny, dismantle, and um, another D, uh, how uh, majority members deal with um, uh, privilege, for example. So if they feel threatened, they might have a defensive reaction, but at the same time, they might feel guilt or shame. And afterwards, they might engage in this uh, pro-social behavior and uh, the self-image identity restoration is more like a latent construct here. So after the pro-social behavior, there might be consequences or there might be outcomes. So this is what we really wanted to test. So what we did is for his bachelor thesis, we actually conducted one study and then we followed this up to with two more studies. And today I'm gonna talk about uh, all of these three studies and also I'm gonna talk about our research plan and I would love to hear your thoughts, whether this sounds plausible to you. So we wanted to do this in the context of the US. Again, that's something very untypical for me to go and collect data in the US because I come from Turkey originally and I think there's a lot of research that I can already do in this part of the world, but we thought that this would be very interesting to actually go and do the study there. So from our perspective, the transgression that we were interested in, the discrimination of Black people by the white majority in the US. And uh, in some cases, this could create some sort of identity threat, especially now this is becoming more and more uh, on topic and people are discussing this. And we wanted to achieve this by 
in our design. Uh, across three studies, the designs are very similar with subtle differences that I'm going to mention. What we wanted to do was basically ask all the participants to read a newspaper article about the George Floyd case. So we assumed that this would uh, induce guilt in our participants and afterwards they could engage in some sort of defensive reaction, which we were not interested in, we didn't measure, but we also assumed that some people would feel some guilt or shame about their white identities. So afterwards, um, we had one control condition that we didn't ask participants to do anything after they read the newspaper article and then they responded to our outcome variables. But in the first study, we had two experimental conditions. So in the first experimental condition, we said, you know, this happens. And uh, now we want you to take a moment to think about this, what happened to George Floyd and in general, what happens to black people in the US. And we want you to write an apology. And in one condition, we said, we want you to write an apology on behalf of all white Americans. And in the other condition, we said, we want you to write an apology on behalf of these small groups of American people or white American people who commit these kind of transgressions. Um, spoiler alert, there was no significant difference between these two groups. So that's why we collapsed them uh, when we were analyzing it. And in study two and three, we did not go for a subgroup apology. We just asked them to apologize on behalf of all white people. Um, but the reason that we conducted study two and three were also in study one, we had a lot of uh, ideas, a lot of different variables that we were interested in, and everything was super exploratory. And uh, after the first study, we wanted to, you know, just get rid of the second experimental condition and get rid of the potential moderators and just go, go and collect data with a refined design. And uh, in study three, um, we did something else, uh, which I will explain in a bit as well. So after half of the participants or one third of the participants apologize, we asked them a, a number of questions. And these questions um, are clustered in terms of uh, emotions. So how does this work uh, when, you know, after apologizing, what happens to the guilt or shame they felt after the identity threat, which we never directly measured. We just assumed that reading the article would uh, induce guilt or shame. And then what happens after apologizing? And uh, we compared this against the control condition when they, where they didn't do anything. And also we were interested in what are, um, well, um, what are other variables that could be interesting here? So we basically, the first thing that we measured was uh, guilt and shame in terms of emotions, but in terms of intergroup related variables, we ask for support for collective action or support for black, specifically Black Lives Movement, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, we, but we were also interested in whether some of the variables that were, uh, you know, that were used in previous uh, studies, especially if you're familiar with Katia Teixeira's and Russell Spears' research on, uh, on advantage group support for collective action for Black Lives Matter movement. We were interested in uh, the variable uh, in-group image protection, whether you know, engaging in this kind of pro-social action protects your image or out-group gain, whether engaging in this type of behavior uh, benefits the out-group. Um, but also I was interested in whether this has any costs um, whether this has any costs in terms of the attitudes towards the art group or how uh, one perceives their in-group, but also at the personal individual level, whether that affects my self-esteem or positive or negative effect after I apologize. So we had a bunch of these variables. 
um, that we put in the in study. So what we're, what I'm going to do is now going to I'm going to present a lot of uh, results. But uh, I will remind you what the variable on this uh, slide is, and then I will remind what we expected to find. And then uh, you will see three different scatter plots, and I will mention which effects are significant. But basically, uh, it's study one, study two, and study three. And uh, effects are mostly consistent, but there are also differences that I will talk about. So at first, what we expected in terms of collective emotions was when asked to apologize. So all the participants were, were white Americans. And um, after guilt induction, when we thought when asked to apologize, participants will feel the least amount of collective guilt and least amount of collective shame as compared to the control condition. And this effect would also be moderated by in the in-group identification. But as, as you can see across all patterns, and we in the first study, we found a significant main effect of apology and also significant interaction effect. In the second study, we didn't find um, an effect, an interaction effect, but we did find a small uh, effect of the condition. And in the uh, final study, we found uh, both main effect and interaction effect. So what we, what you see here is the blue or green line uh, across three studies is the apology conditions and um, in-group identification on the side. So basically high identifiers feel more guilt after apologizing. In the second study, Apologizers feel more guilt, but it's not moderated by identification. And in the third study, it's the same as the first study. So it was exactly the opposite of what we expected. Actually, when we were hypothesizing, we were not really sure which direction we should hypothesize. But the, one of the reasons that we hypothesized that uh, high identifiers would feel the least guilt after apologizing was that because apologizing is a prosocial act and then they would just be relieved of these negative emotions and they will just feel fine afterwards. But turns out, I think apology actually reinforced the guilt. In the second study, uh, sorry, uh, the second variable is, collect, uh, is collective shame. And in the first study, we didn't find any effects on collective shame. In the second study, we found a main effect of apology. So people who apologize or participants who apologize felt more shame as, uh, as compared to those who did not apologize. So here I would like to tell you the timeline of these two studies and then this is a postdoc explanation. But when we first collected this data, I think it was um, uh, last year in November. Uh, so it was, I think guilt was more uh, salient or guilt came out significant in our results. But the second study, we collected the data one week after the trial of George Floyd was um, concluded. So, you know, the difference between shame and guilt, uh, you know, guilt being more about actions and shame being more about identity or who you are. Perhaps um, I think the, the conclusion of the trial made some of these uh, high identifiers or some of these white Americans to think that this is who we are, this is what our identity is. And basically uh, in the second study, right, one week after the trial was concluded, uh, apologizing uh, increased shame uh, as compared to non-apologizers. And in the third study, we actually have both a main effect and an interaction effect that uh, apologizing increases shame, especially for high identifiers. I hope this is clear and I'm just going to continue and this is going to be the pattern of results that I'm going to mention from now on. 
Um, so just a summary, after apologizing, people felt more guilt and uh, more shame uh, as compared to the control condition. And this was also uh, moderated by in-group identification in, in that high identifiers felt uh, more of these emotions. Um, there are differences across studies, but we will meta-analyze this uh, at some point. Um, so our main variable that we were really interested in was support for collective action, because um, if people apologize and then uh, it relieves them from guilt and then it makes them feel better about themselves, maybe they don't think that it is necessary to support action or be allies. And then again, we found exactly the opposite of what we expected. So what you see here is after apologizing, the support for collective action was higher, and this was a significant interaction effect. And in the second study, again, uh, collective action support was higher after apologizing, especially for high identifiers. In the third study, we don't have an interaction effect, but we still have a main effect of apology. Uh, but this is not moderated by in-group identification. Um, so our next variable, uh, these, the next two variables are a little bit complicated because the patterns are really inconsistent. So this is out group gain. So the questions were phrased in a way that um, whether apologizing would uh, help uh, black people in the US. Uh, but um, so now I need to tell the rationale for the third study because in the first two studies, um, we did the guilt induction but we did not mention anything about apologies, but our dependent variables sometimes use the word apology and then how apology would benefit the in-group or the out-group. But in the, uh, so, and I, we thought that was a problem, especially for the control condition, because they didn't know what the study was about until they answered these questions. So in the third study, uh, we didn't ask them to apologize, but we just mentioned that sometimes apologizing is used by groups so that they can, uh, you know, mend the relationships or they can feel better about themselves. But we didn't ask them to apologize. But we just gave a rubric like this. And then we asked all these questions that included apologies in itself. So this um, variable outgroup gain, whether uh, black people will benefit from white people apologizing. In the first study, we found an interaction effect. Uh, again, uh, people who apologize, especially the high identifiers, thought that black people would benefit from this apology. In the second study, we only found um, a main effect, but there was no interaction effect, as you can see. And in the third study, the interaction effect was back again. So apology increased perceptions of outgroup gain, especially for high identifiers. Um, these studies, uh, these variables come from Katia's research. Um, and the second one is about uh, image protection for the uh, advantage group. And in the first study, as you can see, again, there's an interaction effect and uh, high identifiers, especially uh, those who apologize, especially high identifiers, really think that apologizing will help uh, with their uh, white image. In the second study, I think we have no effect of uh, apology or no effect of um, no interaction effect. Uh, in the third study, again, the interaction effect comes back. So apology uh, increases perceptions of image protection gains, uh, especially for high identifiers. Um, so the other two variables that we included were uh, in-group liking and out-group liking, whether this would change the attitudes. And as you can see, in-group liking is predicted by, um, by uh, identification. So high identifiers like their in-group more, surprise, surprise. But there is no uh, indirect, uh, sorry, there is no um, interaction effect or a main effect of apology. 
So I think this is good findings because you know people can engage in apologies, but this does not harm how they see their in-group. Maybe white people should see their in-group differently, but anyway. Um, and in terms of the out-group liking, again, there is no um, there is no significant effect. Although in the third study, uh, high identifiers who apologize um, seems to like the out-group a little bit less, but this effect is marginal, but I think it's still worth mentioning. Uh, just the summary is, uh, especially high identifiers after they apologize, they show more support for collective action, and then they also see higher out-group gain and in-group image protection motives uh, as compared to those who are in the control condition. And uh, this, this uh, apology doesn't seem to have any effect on in-group liking and out-group liking. And finally, I'm gonna talk about these variables, what happens to the person who engages in the apology is again, we see no effects on apology on uh, self-esteem. This was a single item measure across three studies. And uh, in terms of positive effect, how they felt after the study, uh, in the first two studies, we don't see any effect, but in the third study, we actually have um, an interaction effect. So high identifiers uh, who apologize have more positive effect uh, at the end of the study which is interesting, but we don't see this pattern in the first two studies, and then no effect on negative effect. Um, so again, what I always wanted to say from the beginning is like, it seems like apology, apologizing or uh, engaging in an apology for the majority members is good uh, for, for support for social change, but it also seems like there's no cost um, for their in-group or also for their personal um, situation. Um, but um, across three studies, there are a lot of consistencies, but there are also a couple of uh, inconsistencies that needs um, to be addressed. But we also have quite a few limitations. So I'm just going to quickly talk about these and the next studies uh, that are lined up. So I would love to hear your thoughts on these. Um, so all these samples came from prolific. Uh, they were not necessarily representative. And the first study was very exploratory. But as I said, in second and third studies, we did not include any uh, potential moderators or extra variables or extra conditions that were exploratory. So I thought, I think we just like stopped doing that. Um, but the biggest problem or biggest uh, situation is that we excluded people that refused to apologize. So we coded these apologies uh, when they wrote uh, to be read, but uh, we had this pre, uh, predetermined uh, exclusion criteria that we would only include people who apologizes because we wanted to see what happens after people engage in an apology rather than they refuse or whatever. And actually over time, what we saw is, uh, we didn't really look at the statistically, but uh, anecdotally what we saw is the number of people who refused to apologize in the experimental study increased. So one of the things that we really need to fix is actually, this is the first problem, uh, that we need to make people really engage in an apology uh, because these results only concern those who uh, engaged in an apology. Um, that could be a social desirability effect, of course, and can we generalize our findings? Um, but we, what we really want to do is, uh, before we go to the other context, run all the other studies, how we can actually increase people's intentions uh, or people's um, like behavior in apology. That's something that I would love to hear your thoughts in. And we are thinking about social norms, perhaps, but also we have some other uh, ideas to follow up. So we are, we are already we have already applied for an ethics for this um, 
We are going to ask uh, Catholic people to apologize uh, against uh, transgressions against LGBTQ people. So we wanted to see whether this is going to work in a different context. But also in the Netherlands, uh, we wanted to run a study by looking at you know colonial past and more recent transgressions like Swartopeet and then whether this uh, time you know this time the situation about time effect of time will uh, will be different. Um, but I think I'm going to stop now. I would love to thank my student who led this project, Bastien, and my collaborator, Joel Anderson, and thank you for listening. Yes, thank you, Yasin. Really, really a great uh, presentation, super interesting. Um, so for the people listening, you can, uh, if you have a question, you can put it in the Q&A box, and uh, I will read them out loud, and then Yasin can uh, answer them. Uh, I just had like a, a clarification question first. Uh, how did you measure these emotions? Uh, also like shame and guilt, but also this positive and negative effect. And I was also wondering whether you um, measured the emotions before uh, the apology and control condition and then after again to see whether there's really some release of guilt or whether you only uh, measured it at one time point. Yeah. Um, so we did not measure before uh, the apology so we just thought that this would this would just be guilt induction um, I, I i don't do a lot of pre-post measures but maybe that's something that could be incorporated in a different design in the first two studies we measured guilt and shame uh, with long items things like i feel ashamed because of this i feel ashamed and these kind of things and then in one of the talks that we received this uh, feedback and then in the third study we also put just like I feel ashamed, embarrassed, and you know these like just emotions without a context, and also anger that was uh, suggested by Russell Spears, and uh, we find the same effects. But I I presented the same one so that the talk would be consistent. And I think you had a second part of your question that I don't remember now. Uh, yeah, um, how you measured it, like what what kind of uh, also positive and negative effects. Yeah, and uh, I was thinking uh, maybe... positive negative effect is like from uh, affect valuation index. It's just like emotion. Oh, yeah. How do you feel right now? Yeah, because I was also thinking it might be interesting to do some physiological measurements uh, and to see whether it sort of decreases after people mm -hmm. uh, received apology uh, treatments. Yeah. Um, there are some uh, questions in the chat, which I'll... Um... I'll also have a look. Yes, so uh, first, Yolanda uh, made a, a comment. <laughs> Um, she said, uh, theoretically, it is possible that in a control condition, people use their own in, own mental strategy to reduce guilt, which is maybe more effective than apologies. Yeah, that's uh, very true, because I mean, I always feel very weird about control conditions because you really don't know what's going on in a control condition, especially when it's an empty control condition. Um, that's a very good point, Yoranika, if you have any ways to... <laughs> tackle that or address it or incorporate it in the design I would love that but um, there's a very that's a very good point uh, well this one you could check I think by having a pre-post design right mm -hmm. because then at least you can see what direction it's going in uh, but Eric's next question I think uh, is another one that has the same sort of press uh, premise I think but that would not be solved in that way now should I read it online yeah. So Eric is saying, uh, I also wonder if apology without action, along with it basically, uh, along with it basically serves as rumination, which would upregulate guilt. 
I wonder if you would get results more in line, more in line with your original hypothesis if participants were given the opportunity to actually engage in pro-social behavior, like make a donation to Black Lives Matter um, when they wrote the apology. Yeah, so this is a very good point. Um, this is also how we conceptualize pro-social behavior. So I think the way that you conceptualize it might uh, it might be different. The, the outcomes might be different. So I, I still think apology is a pro-social behavior, and then this is the outcome of that. Um, but at the same time, I think uh, you're right. Maybe our original hypothesis would be supported if we asked them to do some sort of donation or something like that. Um, we, we did talk about the rumination uh, possibility. Um, but again, I think, I mean, there, there, there are other things that we can do with the data because we really ask people to apologize and then they wrote things and then we can um, try to code these things and then see whether there's an aspect of rumination and whether that within that experimental condition also moderates these effects. Um, but very uh, cool comments. Thank you. Uh, okay, yeah, there's another question from uh, Diamantes. He's also part of the Hot Politics Lab. Um, he says, thank you, Yasin. Interesting topic of research. Uh, I wonder about your ideas on social desirability and what makes you consider it as a factor in the apology guilt relationship? Yeah, uh, in the first two um, studies, we did not say anything about what would happen to those apologies. So we also made it very clear that if people don't engage in the apology, they would still be paid uh, in the study. So they knew that, but you know, that's not just the only reason social desirability happens. Um, but we didn't say anything whether we would read the apologies or whether they would be given to other people. But, you know, thinking about social desirability, uh, perhaps we can incorporate something into our design and say, you know, can you please write an apology and we are, gonna, we are going to give this apology to someone to read and evaluate or something like that. And then maybe people will engage in a more performative apology and then the results would be different and then we can actually unpack those uh, differences that you know I think and that can say something about uh, social desirability. But I just don't know how that would affect but it's just it could be something that is there, uh, but we really wanted to control by saying that you don't have to do this. Uh, but you can do it if you want, and some of the apologies were heartbreaking people really felt and they apologize and. Some of the things were heartbreaking because people refused to apologize in a very strong manner. Um, oh, um, okay. We have another uh, question from uh, Maarten Bezel. Um, thank you for your presentation, Yasin. I am curious whether you can distinguish between sincere apologies and people who just apologize because they are being asked to. Maybe you can look at a range of reactions to trans transgressions and focus on those who apologize out of their own will? Yeah, so again, that's a design thing. So we can just give the option to apologize to people, or we can even say, you know, do you think this, this, uh, you, do you think this is uh, worth for an apology? So would you like to apologize or whatever? Um, and then whether people, you know, we can just give option and then they can just choose if they want to do that or not. And I think, um, I, I think in terms of, those who chose on their own will to apologize, I think the effects will get even stronger. So I'm not expecting the effects to disappear or get weaker because since we only focused on those who actually apologize, the effects will even get stronger. But I don't know how ethical that will be or whether I will get an IRB approval here, but like 
you know, I, I was doing some studies when I was in Edinburgh years ago that, you know, we would ask people an opinion and then we would ask them to write something against their opinion. We were measuring authenticity at the time, but, you know, if you can also do designs like that, you know, do you think this deserves an apology? And they say no. And I'm like, okay, great. Write an apology now. Or they say yes. And then I just don't ask them to do an apology because if somebody already thinks that it's worth apology and then they're primed with the idea of apology, maybe they don't, they don't even need to write that down, you know? If they agree, maybe they will get the same effects. Um, but I don't see this as a problem, and I don't think you do either. But like, I think this is also another study that we can just uh, add to the program. Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, Matthijs Rodijn um, uh, asks two questions. Um, first of all, I very much like your toy stealing analogy. Having children myself, I was wondering if you could say more about this third step. You argue that after being scolded, a child could uh, behave defensively or express guilt or sh and shame. To what extent? To what extent is this a strong or? My experience is that children are very inconsistent creatures, and that they can be very defensive and feel sorry at the same time. I could imagine grown-up people experience with um, white, guilt. A white guilt and defense uh, at the same time. What do you think about this? Um, and would this have consequences for your expectations? Um, that's a very good point. And thank you for um, saying that you like the um, um, analogy because I wasn't a big fan of that. And I was also scared that some people would be like, so you're likening you know, Black Lives Matter movement to a child stealing a toy, uh, but this gives some sort of um, uh, confirmation or you know, validation for us. Um, I, I'm not sure if... Um, if it's an either or situation, you're right. I mean, I, I explained it like that at the beginning, I think, but at the same time, we didn't really um, measure defensive reactions. Um, and, you know, maybe again, another study idea would be to do that and incorporate in our design and then perhaps try to ask people to apologize because, you know, there are defensive reactions. Some people just did not apologize. Um, but at the same time, maybe some people didn't want to apologize. They were a bit defensive, but they eventually did it anyway. Um, but um, I think it can coexist, but I still think that um, there is a little bit of an either or, at least for some people. Um, but uh, I, I think that's something that we can incorporate in the design, probably. Um, okay, yeah, and he has a second question. Um, he says, I might have missed this, but uh, could you say a bit more about why you think the effects are in the opposite direction? Could there be a spiral of guilt? Salience of guilt fuels more guilt. Um, so when I said uh, in the, it was in the opposite direction at the beginning, when we, when we conceptualized the study, we thought perhaps uh, apologizing is a pro-social act. And then when you apologize, you're just relieved of the guilt and then you don't need you don't need you don't feel the need that you need to support the movement anymore because you have done your share and you don't need to be an ally or whatever uh, but this wasn't the case in the first study and then the more we thought about it uh, we thought perhaps apologizing is a different type of pro-social action and then as uh, eric said earlier as well so maybe if you ask people to do some sort of donation maybe they would be like okay i'm done here but uh, apologizing seems to be increasing the guilt and uh, yeah, maybe there's that spiral, as you mentioned, because we thought that it might actually alleviate the guilt, but it doesn't seem to be the case, especially for high identifiers. 
Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, next question, uh, Annelia. Uh, what does refusing to apologize mean or until in this context? Could it be some sort of action or inaction against the system itself? Well, that's a very good question, Anna. Um, but in our case, again, we didn't ask intentions to apologize or whether you would be willing to apologize or whatever. We asked people to apologize. And those people that we excluded from the uh, study were people who just refused to apologize because they were like, there's nothing to apologize. And I'm sure we can find more uh, diversity in the answers if we were if we went back and, you know, collated all these uh, no apologies from three studies, because some people would say, I don't need to apologize um, because there is no inequality. Some people might say, I don't need to apologize because that's not my job, because I also have my own sufferings. Again, going back to, you know, privilege awareness uh, and 3D model. And, you know, because people might think it's not necessary for them to do that. Or some people might just say, I don't need to apologize because I'm white, but I, I didn't do this transgression. Um, we didn't really call it them because, you know, they were like, apology, no apology. So let's go and analyze the data. But I think uh, it is something that we can definitely look at. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so are there uh, some people maybe uh, on Zoom who want to ask a question? One of the panelists. There's still a couple of uh, minutes for some questions. So if you, uh, as a Zoom attendant, want to uh, ask a question, you can put it in the chat. Yeah, Bert. Yeah, I, I want to ask a question. Thanks, first of all, uh, Yasin, for uh, for this excellent talk. And I must admit, following you on Twitter, I was a bit jealous about your uh, about what seemed to be a normal academic tour uh, uh, along some of the the nice institutions in the U.S. So, uh, um, uh, so, 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 my question is about about this this what it means to apologize, and a little bit some related to the question that was asked earlier. Do you have any idea of how people? felt when they were asked to apologize as, as like for some people at least in the, the Netherlands this would be somewhat if I would have been would ask to write something could you apologize for colonial past or the inequalities I might feel uncomfortable or I might so that there could be somebody earlier asked like is this because people just write it because they want credits or would it put people some people uh do something that they've never really do and others that will be like, yeah i want to do this so what what are do you have any idea of getting a handle of what you put people in in that experimental condition um i don't know and um again i can ask this question at the end and i would be like how did you feel when you apologize not as a part of the study but so that we have an understanding of that but um, it's not exactly the same thing, but that's, that was one of the reasons that we had these like, uh, you know, personal or, uh, you know, well-being variables, because I was interested in, you know, what, what will I feel after I am asked to apologize? Am I going to feel more bad about myself uh, or better about myself? And we didn't find any effects. And I mean, non-significant effects doesn't mean that there is no effect, of course. But um, across three studies, except for positive effect, positive affect being affected positively by apologizing. Uh, so all these like eight out of nine effects were non-significant. So it seems like it's not doing much. But again, maybe that's the that's the side of apology that that's actually 
it maybe it doesn't alleviate the guilt, but it alleviates something. So I, I feel okay. So I don't feel super bad, but you're right. Maybe I can actually ask people, you know, I'm going to ask you to apologize in a minute in the next page. So how do you feel about that? Yeah. Or, you know, something like that. And um, I'm sure that will also have an effect on the apology that was going to come afterwards. But again, I don't know, somebody give me money so I can run all these studies <laughs> and, uh, you know, answer all your questions in my ne next talk. But I, I think this is a very fruitful area. Like every time I talk to someone, some another study idea comes up. And um, but what I, what I take from these three studies is like apologies are not doing a lot of bad and it might be doing some good. So, and I think that's, that's good enough for me. At the moment. So, so, so one suggestion that you could might use that is maybe doesn't cost you money to, in a sense of running another study is that is how, how I understand it is people write something, right? People, people write their apology down. Yeah. So is there a way of maybe content coding these apologies in a sense of getting a handle of the complexity of the apology or the amount of is it uh, is some sort of sentiment you could get out of it a smart way of getting at at a way of proving that they were indeed apologizing or yeah I'm, I'm getting at some sort of degree of sincerity i guess or which might be hard but given that you have that text data there might be some way to get a handle on on at addressing this question of what did people yeah. feel when they were asked to apologize at least from what they wrote down um so our predetermined criteria for exclusion was remorse whether they express remorse or not i think we excluded people who said oh, i'm sorry for what happened mm. we didn't include those people because that's not an apology mm. yeah uh, so we like in all the participants that were presented today there is remorse but I, I think that's not just one thing that we can look at, right? So there's no. probably more than that. But you're right. We have the text data and it's absolutely possible to look at all these things. Um, Tia yeah, is or... asking a similar question, I think, uh, in the chat. Yeah. 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 Um, Tia's question, I think everyone can read. Uh, thanks. Uh, interesting as always. Not sure if I've covered this. I didn't. But, you know, do we have any plans to analyze the actual apologies people wrote? We absolutely do. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, I think perhaps in the next talk that I give on this uh, topic, I can also put a couple of apologies because that can really also show to people what we see as apology and then what we used to exclude because um, if they didn't show remorse, we didn't include them, but probably there is more than remorse that we can look. Isn't there um, types of words that might signify certain things so i don't know action oriented variables versus uh words versus blah 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 is there something like that uh, for emotions maybe ruthie knows anything about this or uh, any communications researchers so if you use adjectives versus i don't know do you know what i mean yeah i mean i'm, I'm i think it's also getting more and more popular i think craig mccarthy does some work even on twitter if people use a V language rather than a, you know I language that's looking at identification and groupings yeah. and stuff, mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that could be possible. And I mean, may, perhaps we do in a way that we really look at um, the first study, perhaps more from like a create a code book or whatever, and then get these things, and then uh, do uh, look at the apologies in second and third study as uh, more from a confirmatory perspective and see the ratios and what comes out in there and then how that relates to guilt and all the other emotions that we have in the study. 
that's definitely possible. Thank you for the suggestion, Yorinka. Yeah, great. Uh, I think, oh, Annalias has one more suggestion. There is some work suggesting that an effective apology to an outgroup needs to include guilt and empathy. Perhaps you can try to see whether these are expressed in apology they wrote. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, um, we, we did see those papers. So that's, you know, most of these are experimental studies showing to a, dis a disadvantaged group member to evaluate an apology and then whether you know the one that includes empathy is better than the other or whatever but we actually didn't think that we can you know go like from the other direction and then look at that and that's a good suggestion Anna thank you yeah. um okay um it's time so thank you very much Yasin again also for thank your you. discussion and the presentation a uh, really interesting work and uh, we hope to hear more about it um, so we have a second speaker and uh, she will join a little bit before three. So we now have a, a coffee break. So we can just get something to drink and uh, be off Zoom a little bit. Uh Welcome uh, 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 for the second part of uh, this uh, Dutch political uh, psychology meeting, which I should say is a, a, a co-sponsored by our whole politics lab and I want to thank Christian for uh, for um, for uh, hosting uh, the the zoom environment and uh, I want to particularly also thank Michael Holman for uh, organizing and advertising everything and um, uh, I want to uh, give a warm welcome to uh, Professor Jamie Settle, who is a, a, a Wakefield term distinguished associate professor of government at William and Mary, and uh, and and I'm really happy that uh, that Jamie is uh, is is here with us today because she is really the. Uh, doing uh, the work that we as Dutch political psychologists uh, and the people in the hot politics like, like. Uh, it's really truly interdisciplinary. It asks big questions and uses methods uh, that are cutting edge and that are allowed to uh, answer these questions. So uh, Jamie works with things like network analysis up to the level of, uh, of our, and our, and our genes. And uh, that results to really important contributions uh, in our field. Uh, she has written an influential book uh, uh, on uh, on social media called Frenemies, and uh, her new book is uh, on its way, or is it on? It's almost. It's almost. It's coming out, right, Jamie? Uh, uh, coming out soon, and uh, I'm really excited that uh, that she will uh, will share some of her new insights with us uh, here today. So, Jamie, uh, the floor is yours. Uh, once uh, you're done with the talk. Uh, people uh, uh, can uh, type their questions uh, in the chat and I will read them out and then uh, you can answer. So uh, for now, the floor is uh, yours. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for the invitation and, and such a nice introduction. Uh, I'm excited to be here and thanks for your patience with my uh, technological glitch. So um, can you all see my screen? Okay, fantastic. Um, so you are the, the first audience to see uh, the, the penultimate version of our new book's cover. We are working on that this week. Uh, and so the talk that I wanted to give today was a bit of a, a big picture overview of the project that I've been working on for several years now uh, with my co-author, Taylor Carlson. Um, and talk about the sort of uh, key findings from the book and, and where we're thinking about going from here, what questions I think um, we leave unanswered and, and how we're thinking about tackling those. Um, so this project started uh, nearly a decade ago. Uh, the origin story is that Taylor was an undergraduate at William and Mary. Uh, 
incredibly bright, way smarter than I am. Um, she went on to do her graduate work at UC San Diego, and she's now a professor at WashU. So this was work that was supported by uh, the National Science Foundation, um, and we collected data over a, a period of several years. And, and some of this work has appeared in manuscripts that have come out um, in the last couple of years. I put those on the slide there. Uh, and excitingly, our, our book is under contract. We are hoping to get copy edits any day now, and it should be in hand. Um, they've said it probably won't be ready by the Midwest uh, conference, but it should be ready by APSA in the fall. Um, and so even though we are done right now with this stage, uh, you know, the book's about to come out, um, we're not done with our interest in this project. I think for both of us, this represents a, a really big question that we want to continue to explore over the course of our career. And so I'm looking forward to any feedback you all have about things you think are, are missing um, or ideas that we should push further on as we think about future work down the road. All right, so the past year, I think, has made really clear to Americans that we are in a uniquely fragile moment in our nation's history. And I think that people across the world are feeling this. We're seeing, you know, as, as many of you all have studied, uh, you know, the rise of populism, um, economic discontent. Um, there are a lot of, of reasons that um, people are starting to accept the, the extent of the deep divisions in, in many of the societies we live in. Um, I think for Americans, it really has been in the last you know, 12 to 18 months that we've fully accepted um, just how polarized things have become. Um, and I think most people know that at least in the U.S. context, we're not going to be making progress on this deep seated polarization without some sort of institutional or structural change. But at the same time, embedded within that call is this idea that somehow if we could just get people to talk with one another, um, if we could help people see that they have more in common than they do uh, have things that are different, that, that this would um, be an important step in our, our um, ability to move forward and, and um, you know, overcome the polarization that we've seen in the past few years. And I think civil society has really stepped up to try to fill this void. There are now dozens of organizations um, that are, are trying to help people communicate across lines of difference. And this is a, a different theoretical perspective than the deliberative democracy framework. So you've seen over the past 20 years, organizations that try to bring people together in order to make collective decisions in a more um, deliberate, transparent way. Um, but these organizations are different. These are organizations that are largely premised on the idea of intergroup contact theory um, that are saying that if you structure situations under the right kinds of conditions, um, that people will be able to um, learn and, and learn to empathize with people who are different than them. And that will change the stereotypes uh, and negative affect that they have toward members of their out group. Um, and so these organizations are, are really busy trying to do this. Um, and I think that there are a lot of um, political scientists who are, are partnering with these sorts of organizations to try to understand how these conversations might work. But at any sort of large scale, the, the solutions are going to rely on more organic forms of interpersonal communication. We can't basically organize our way out of this. We need to think about how people can be talking differently in their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, and this is where I think the, the literature and political science really comes through. 
um, there's a mixed bag of findings. Um, we are confident that we know how to structure situations to get strangers to talk with one another in ways to increase their empathy and lower their levels of effective polarization. Um, but when we've studied organic political talk, we actually see a much uh, more mixed pattern of findings where, yes, sometimes we achieve the aims we want. Sometimes we do succeed in promoting tolerance or uh, helping the, the uninformed become more informed or, or encouraging people to participate more. But there's also evidence that these outcomes can, can backfire and that in certain situations, um, interacting may make polarization worse or may have important distortions in the way that people understand the information environment. Um, and so if we think about the principle of first do no harm, we certainly don't want to be suggesting an intervention that could backfire and could be making things worse. Um, and so the contribution that Taylor and I are trying to make is putting forth a framework to think about new kinds of questions about the process of political discussion. Um, and so thinking about the idea that, you know, the discussion, we're not dealing with isolated instances of discussion. Um, people are navigating through political conversations in the course of their day-to-day -day lives. And we need to think about the impact of the way that they actually talk about politics on the attitudes that they form. And so we're folding in uh, ideas that have emerged at various times from more qualitative studies of uh, political discussion and trying to think about that um, in a more systematic framework. So we've named this framework the 4D framework. Um, our starting place is looking to social psychology um, for the motivations that are known to underpin other forms of interpersonal interaction. Um, so that we know when people are communicating with one another, they're, they're striving to be accurate, right? They want to, to, to know the correct information. Um, they're looking towards these people they're communicating with um, for affirmation for their, their own point of view and their own sense of self. Um, and they're also very vested in affiliation, right? Whatever the context is, whether this is your family or your friends or your coworkers, we communicate with other human beings because we want to um, define our groups and, and be members of a group. And so if we start from this premise that these are the kinds of motivations that likely guide political conversations, uh, as well as just other forms of interpersonal interaction, we then think about how the process of discussion could be built around that. Uh, and so instead of just focusing on this idea of an input to a discussion and, and an output, we actually try to trace the decision-making cycle of political discussion itself. Uh, and so we emphasize um, this, this early stage detection. Um, there's been a dearth of work previously in, in trying to figure out how it is people uh, detect the political views or leanings of those around them to get a sense for whether or not the conversations they might have are likely to be agreeable or disagreeable. Uh, thinking about the decisions that people actually make. Um, we know that people truncate their, dis their, their discussions. We know that people um, often try to derail political conversations that could emerge. And so trying to understand uh, the, the situations that, that do lead people onto this off-ramp. Thinking about what happens during a discussion itself, the decisions people make about how to censor their viewpoints, um, possibly conform to a group decision. 
And then finally, determination, because this is an iterative process, thinking about how the experiences people have in those discussions change their attitudes about how they want to communicate with people about politics more broadly. Uh, and so um, we're, we're, you know, asking different questions at different stages of this. Um, we are thinking about uh, uh, using new forms of measurement to try to capture dynamics that previously haven't been captured before. Okay, um, so we ran a bunch of studies. I'm not gonna go through all of these. I wanna uh, have the chance, I'm more interested in what you all have to say in conversation, but just as kind of a, a big picture point of view here, um, we started collecting data in 2013 and we very intentionally wanted to use uh, a mixed methods approach. And so we have uh, both um, survey data that is uh, that mirrors a nationally representative sample. Um, we have lots of different types of survey experiments and then we have um, two different lab experiments uh, on um, convenient samples of, of William and Mary students that incorporated uh, physiological measurement. Uh, and so um, if you're, I, I pointed to um, where some of the different findings have appeared in our manuscripts. If you're interested in those, I'd be happy to send them to you as well. Um, but I'm gonna give you kind of the um, overview of the patterns and what we found, and then take a deeper dive into the physiological patterns we found, since I know that's likely of most uh, interest to several people in this crowd. All right, we have a lot of findings. We collected data for almost a decade, so um, there, you know, there's there's a lot to work with. Um, but at at the thirty thousand foot level, um, we find evidence that people are able to detect characteristics of potential discussants, um, and that those uh, it's there. Some people seem to be better at it than others, and the people who are better at it seem to be the ones who have the most conditional discussion preferences. Um, so the people who are, are um, you know, most uh, likely to only discuss politics based on whether or not they're going to be entering into agreeable conversations or not, are the kinds of people who seem to have the most refined detection systems for sussing out the viewpoints of other people. At the decision stage, um, we find several patterns about what kinds of conversations are likely to occur and which are likely not to occur. Um, interestingly, we found that uh, people seem to need uh, more compensation, which we're kind of measuring the cost of conversation in one of our studies by seeing how much compensation they would need to have certain kinds of discussions. And interestingly, they demand more money to talk without partisans, even about topics that have nothing to do with politics. Uh, and so this suggests that, that these conversations across lines of political difference have seeped out into other forms of communication as well. I'm going to deeper dive into our pattern of discussion, pattern of findings in the discussion section, but um, the top line finding is um, people are very physiologically activated um, when they even think about having a discussion, um, let alone actually being engaged in one. Uh, and finally, we do see that about 25% of Americans report that they have distanced themselves from someone, a friend of theirs, because of uh, the the political views or the kinds of conversations that they have had with a friend. Um, so these are the, the takeaways from the book. I'm gonna zero in on number three here, talking about the physiological activation. Um, but in the book, we make the, the point that, that we've started 
the conversation about some of these topics, but that we're, we're really hoping that other scholars will pick up where we leave off. So for example, we demonstrate that detection exists and we, do, we show a bit of variation between people in terms of um, who's most likely to try to understand other people's views before they actually engage in a political conversation. Um, but we don't take nearly as deep a dive as we could. There are a lot more questions there. Um, we also find, for example, that um, social concerns people have, so their desire to maintain their relationships with people are a really important factor um, that trump other sorts of considerations. Uh, and so I think pushing further on that will be helpful as well. All right, so let me dive into some specific results here. Um, we did two different lab studies uh, uh, building on each other. Um, and so the first study that we did, we were trying to baseline the idea of physiological response to interpersonal conversation against other measurements we, other physiological measurements we had to different sorts of stimuli. And so um, there'd been a lot of work done having people watch video segments um, of, of disagreeable or, or contentious interactions. And we thought that that might be a good place to kind of baseline the kinds of physiological response people have um, on the cusp of having a political discussion. So in the first study, what we did is we, um, we had uh, participants watch videos that were either politically contentious um, or, or apolitically contentious, and we randomized that order. So half the group saw political and then apolitical, the other half saw apolitical and then political. And then at the end, we told them that they were about to have a conversation with another participant. And this was plausible given the structure of, of how the study was run. Um, subjects saw other people in the lab at the time. So it seemed plausible that there was gonna be a, an actual conversation that happened. And it, what we found is that upon being told that they were about to have a political discussion, they had this noticeable uptick in both their heart rate response and their EDA response um, that was stronger than the response they had to just watching these videos alone. Now this mean heart rate increase in beats per minute was about one and a half beats per minute just upon being told that they were about to have a conversation. But in the next part of the study, we then revealed to them and um, what, what was coming, um, more details about the conversation itself. And so first we told them they were having a discussion. Then we told them characteristics about their partner. And then we told them what they were gonna be talking about. And we varied whether or not their partner was um, portrayed as agreeing with them or disagreeing with them. And whether or not the person had a high or low level of political knowledge. And then the topics were three salient issues at the time we did this study. Um, and what we see is that there's a, a big increase once they're given more information about the kind of conversation they have. And in a regression framework, holding um, a constant uh, you know, variation between individuals that could affect physiological response, um, we see that people who are told that they're gonna have a conversation with an outpartisan um, have a higher level of, of uh, heart rate response to being told that. And there's some suggestive evidence that there might be a slight interaction effect as well uh, if that disagreeable person has a high level of knowledge. And to put this increase, this, this heart rate increase that you know, um, ranged uh, uh, 
you know, vary considerably between individuals, but on average was about 7.8 beats per minute increase. Um, there's evidence showing that when people have a panic attack, that's between eight and 20 beats per minute increase in their heart rate. And so what people are experiencing on the cusp of a discussion for many is equivalent to the feeling of a panic attack in terms of you know, that likely surge of adrenaline. Now, in our follow-up study, we actually wanted to have people talk about politics. And so we had two people come into the lab at the time, both were hooked up to physiological equipment, and we gave them a series of prompts uh, in order to talk about uh, these different issues. And we measured disagreement in three different ways, whether or not they um, shared or did not share their partisan identity, whether on a given issue on the pretest they had agreed or disagreed, and then we asked about their perception, after the conversation, we asked about their perceptions of whether they had agreed or disagreed with their discussion on the four discussion topics. And interestingly, what we see here is that the, the um, disagreeable group, uh, you know, who either experienced, uh, who had, you know, discordant identity or, or actual disagreement, when disagreement is defined by partisan identity, we don't see evidence of an increase in heart rate response. But when people actually disagreed on the issue or they perceived that they disagreed on the issue, those who were in the more disagreeable condition did have elevated heart rates compared to those who were in more agreeable conditions. And this is a really interesting juxtaposition that all of our evidence suggests that people anticipate and, and have a strong response to being told they need to engage without partisans. They don't want to do that. But upon actually doing it, it doesn't appear to be the partisan disagreement itself. It's that notion of disagreement uh, that, that the actual experience of it or the perception. And so one path forward here is trying to think about ways that we, we could help people understand that um, a conversation with an out partisan does not necessarily mean there's going to be intense disagreement that occurs. All right, so why, why do we think this, this, um, these physiological responses matter? This is a friendly audience. I know you all are receptive to this, these techniques, but I think the broader political science community often wants to know. Um, well, one thing that's really interesting, uh, uh, there's a finding coming out of social psychology, um, who, uh, people who have mixed the measurement of physiological response with intergroup contact theory, that um, in, uh, in situations where the, the inner group is defined as interracial conversations, um, the, the people who have the strongest physiological responses and who appear to be most physiologically stressed by the experience are the ones who have had the least interaction with people of a racial group different than their own. And we see some evidence that this is, is similar in the political realm. So in that first study we did where we just told people they were having a conversation, we also measured properties of their social network. Um, and, and we were, because this was a student sample and William and Mary's a small school, we had a, a very nice densely connected network. And what we show is that the people who had the, the greatest elevation in their heart rate were the most likely to have homogenous 
social networks in terms of people's political views. And so there's this idea that the, you know, we, we don't show causality here. We don't know which comes first, the kind of physiological response or the lack of exposure to disagreement. Um, but it does seem that there might be some clustering in networks and that the, the possibility that you're only used to talking to people who you agree with might make the potential of those conversations for disagreeable uh, potential for disagreeable conversations even more physiologically activating. All right, so the implications here are that the conversations that people lead themselves to are the least helpful for overcoming our divisions. We find that people gravitate towards small conversations with like-minded close ties and that they prefer to talk with people at their same knowledge level. Um, this runs counter to our theories about how, the, uh, how information optimally flows through discussion networks in order to help people participate as, as um, you know, citizens uh, in, a, in a democratic society. Um, we also find evidence that some of the group dynamics within these conversations encourage extremity and conformity. But we also point out that people can't avoid these conversations that they don't wanna have. And if we're gonna think about the impact of political talk, we have to incorporate the idea that people may be talking about politics when they don't want to, and that's going to shape their experience, both physiologically and in terms of how they interpret what they just experienced to the next opportunity that they might have about conversations. Now, in our follow-up work, um, we are, are pushing a bit further to try to understand the relative contribution of different factors about discussion configuration, as well as pushing further on intraparty dynamics. So most of our work has, has conceptualized disagreement as, as um, issue disagreement or as partisan disagreement. Um, but there's another interesting fracture among the highly engaged and the less highly engaged. Uh, and Krebnikov and Ryan really make this interesting point that, that the polarization that may be happening in the US is not just partisan, but also based on this idea of people who really, really care about politics and people who don't. Um, we also know that, uh, you know, we, we expect this to be more of the case among Republicans and Democrats, but that because of the pollution of the information environment with mis and disinformation, within parties, there might be divides based on where people are getting their information. And so it's not necessarily that you disagree on your partisanship or disagree on the issues, but that you recognize that people within your own party are not using high quality sources of information. Um, so with support from the Knight Foundation, um, we fielded a conjoint study to try to weigh these different factors against each other and then ask people about the likelihood that they would express their true opinion in a political conversation. Um, so this is the prompt we gave them, then they would do the series of um, evaluating the conjoint and then we would ask them about the likelihood. Um, these are the different factors that we wanted to weigh against each other. These are the factors that emerged from our previous work in terms of that stage two decision, the things that seem to have an impact on the conversations that people move into or, or try to avoid. Um, and so this design hopefully will allow us to understand these factors in relation to one another to get a sense for what the most powerful influences are. Um, and so as an example here, you know, someone would get uh, be told this is a potential conversation they're going to have and then would tell us how likely they are to actually express their true opinions. So 
Taylor and I are often told that our, our research project uh, is, is kind of a downer, that we tend to um, you know, be a bit of, of pessimists on this. Um, but, but we are concerned that all of these calls, all of the, the research agenda that I think has a lot of energy right now built on contact theory um, that suggests that getting people to talk is a uniformly good thing for adjusting their attitudes towards one another. We have a lot of concern about the generalizability of those results. Um, we don't doubt the internal validity. These are well done studies that um, you know, can show change, um, but we don't think they are emulating the kinds of interactions that people are actually uh, engaged in on a day-to-day -day basis. And so reconciling those two things, knowing what could work in theory versus what's actually happening in practice is what we're calling on people to do in order to, to really move us forward on this important question. So um, thanks to the, the NSF for their support. Uh, I've had dozens of uh, you know, research assistants helping um, over the years. And we also wanna thank Aaron Rossiter who helped us with some of the text analysis for the uh, transcripts coming out of the lab experiments that we did. Um, and I'm really looking forward to, to hearing your questions and, and um, answering anything or hearing your input. Um, this was great, and uh, it's uh, it's very nice to uh, to. Uh, we feel honored that we that we are able to see uh, the 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 cover of the book and uh, and in its full complexity. Uh, um, uh, and uh, I've I've heard you talk about this before, and it's nice to 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 see where where this uh, this uh, ended, and also to hear some of your future thoughts. Uh, so hey, for uh, people uh, uh, listening in. Um, you can type a question in the Q&A box. That's the easiest for me to keep track. And then uh, I will read them. Uh, I can read the question out loud and Jamie can actually list, uh, read along. Uh, so if you press on the Q&A button, Jamie, you see the question. Uh, but first uh, do uh, um, a, an, um, an, a question from somebody who is allowed to speak and that's Gij Schumacher who is uh, in uh, Amsterdam. So uh, Gijs, you can unmute yourself and uh, ask Jamie a question. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, great to see you again. Um, and congrats with, with finishing the book. I have a question about your interpretation of the, uh, the physiological data. Um, I guess uh, there were there, uh, respondents when, when, when facing the situation of having a discussion, they could, be, they could indeed be scared. I think that's sort of the, the, the interpretation you, you put on, 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 on why heart rate and skin conductance increases. But I also assume that some individuals are actually very excited, particularly those who are very committed to politics, that they can have like this one-on-one -on -one with someone from the opposite camp that they can tell the, you know, the truth to. Uh, <laughs> is the, did you look at this in any way? And, and, and yeah, that's the question. Uh, yeah, no, that's such a great question. So um, we, we, one of the things we're interested in this project is individual differences. And so we did want to get a better handle on what kinds of people are likely to experience positive emotions versus negative emotions. And so we did assess the emotional response that, that people self-reported. Um, because, you know, as you point out, these measures that we're using, heart rate and EDA, are, are not getting at you know, the positive and negative, right? There's magnitude of activation. And so we can't actually infer that the, this is all a negative emotion or all anxiety. Um, we do see some evidence that, that um, there is more anticipated negative emotion 
in disagreeable conversations. Um, but we did, you know, as with a lot of the physiological work, you don't get great matches between people's self-reports and their actual physiological report. And so um, it is true that the people who were most interested in politics and were the most partisan um, were the most positively enthused about the idea of having these conversations. Um, but we, I, I think part of it is a power issue. Um, this, we collected these data, you know, in 2014, I think. And if, uh, if I were to go back and know what I know now, I probably would design these to try to tighten the design to have more power to get at this. But, um, but we can't say with certainty that there's a clear pathway between being more partisan, more engaged, more positive emotion, and that therefore you're more physiologically activated for that, that reason and that the opposite holds for people who are less excited. But my, my gut tells me that's what's going on. I just think we have more work to do before I could actually say with confidence that that's what we show. Thanks. Um, let's go to a question from somebody who has not has the right to speak in this environment. And that is Haley Kelsall, who is a PhD student. Uh, that's not personal, Haley. That's just how we set it up, right? So uh, Haley is a PhD student at the Political Science Department of the University of Amsterdam. Uh, and she writes the following. Thanks, Jamie. This is really interesting. Apologies for any typos. She's writing on a mobile phone. Um, so I was wondering, did you also ask participants that you told they would have a discussion, how they expected the conversation to be in terms of pleasant and unpleasant experience? I can imagine, I can imagine assuming the conversation will be unpleasant would generally make people anxious, nervous. We didn't, we should have. Um, so we, we asked them the emotional questions with the, with the assumption that if they reported it was making, the idea of it was making them anxious that that was um, tied to how much they thought that it would be unpleasant. Um, but we didn't get their, their anticipated. Um, what's interesting though, in the study where they did talk with one another, we see, we see really wide variations between people in terms of the, um, the, the perception of disagreement they did have. It's not as correlated with the actual amount of disagreement that existed in the conversation. The perception of disagreement seems to be more tied to people's um, sort of what they came into the conversation expecting, right? And so I think it's just another reminder that sort of um, objective reality and the way we perceive that reality are not always as correlated as they could be, but that if we're talking about psychology, it's really people's perceptions and experience that matters more than the objective existence or lack thereof of disagreement. Right. Related to this, Jamie, uh, do you have, did you look at the it's a question for me, Dan, actually. Uh, did you look at the responses in skin conductors heart rate during these conversations as well? So in a sense of, of and, and do you have any a, sort of when the conversation became more tense, do you see a spike or, you know, you have these studies that, that sometimes people that affiliate, they start to align their heart rate, right? There's all sorts of things. Happen. So do you have anything that happened during these conversations? So we have the data potentially to look. The way we structured it, we we were trying to do a compromise between capturing the way an organic conversation might go, but also structuring the experiment tightly enough that we could get meaningful measurements of, of conversations on these topics. So the conversations 
Um, I forget if they were uh, 30 seconds or a minute long um, on each of these four different policy mm -hmm. issues. And so we do have the videos and the transcripts. Um, what we don't have is a great way to take that and identify what we would consider to be like the peak contentious moment, right? <laughs> um, but, but we have, if anyone's interested in time series analysis, I mean, we have really rich data. We could do some cool things with these recordings and, and the physiological measurement to try, if someone has a good idea for how we could capture that based on the video or the transcript, um, we should be able to pair that tightly with the physiology data that we do have. Now, one of my big COVID bummers was we had a study all ready to go in the field where we really did want to push more on these um, contentious interactions. And, and we were, we've always been interested in this idea of a topic being contentious versus the, the characteristics of the person you're talking to or the way that they ask you. And so we had a study planned on much more contentious issues where we were actually putting respondents on the spot to, to tell us, you know, being asked directly, what do you think? And they were in a small group conversation. We were like three weeks away from going in the field when COVID hit. And um, our policies, our, our college policies right now, is we still have a mask mandate. And so, which I'm I want, but it also means that we can't get small groups of students into a room uh, where they can be talking to one another without masks. So I'm interested in it, but I'm not sure when I'll actually be able to, to collect the data for the idea that we had. <laughs> Great. Uh, let's go to a couple of uh, other questions. There's a question from Amanda Friesen. Uh, hi, Jamie. Always love your work. I was wondering if you have any data on when people disagree what is politics. That is, some people see everything as political and others think pol uh, of politics very narrowly, in other words, parties and elections. Any thoughts on this? Yeah. Hi, Amanda. I can't actually see you, but I hope you're doing well. Um, so not from this project. Um, I do have some of that work in the Frenemies book where I show that um, there's a, a pretty wide range of what people consider to be about politics, that it's, it is much more than just, you know, policies and elections, and that some people have very broad interpretations of what's considered to be politics. Um, so we didn't, um, we didn't push on, uh, we didn't push on that in this project. When we had, we did a study we called the Name Your Price Studies, where we um, uh, used some kind of behavioral economics approaches to try to get people to put a price point on the conversations that they would need to have. And we picked things that we thought were as explicitly non-political as possible. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm in the camp that says like everything has been politicized. There's kind of a political angle on that, you know, and so it's hard to think, it's, it's hard to know whether or not even those things we picked um, everyone would have agreed that those were non-political topics. Um, but yeah, I, I'm with you that this is, we don't know a lot about what's going on in people's heads about what is political and not. And that's something that we need a lot more work on. And if you want to work on it with me, let me know. Excellent. Uh, next uh, question is from Matthijs Rodan, who is uh, one of our co-founders of our politics lab. Uh, thank you, Jamie, for this presentation. I have a question about the motivational framework you presented on one of your first slides. Here, I recognized accuracy and directional motivated reasoning, but it wasn't entirely clear to me what affiliation motivations are. You mentioned that this is, has to do with affiliations with others. Could you say a bit more about this? Is, it a, is this about affirmation of identity of the groups one affiliates with? 
Yeah, so so affiliation is is about this sense of belonging. So if affirmation is more about your sense of self um, and more about getting reinforcement for what you believe or, or who you are, affiliation is is about this idea of belonging to the group in which you are a part. And so if you know when when we think about where political conversations actually emerge, they emerge among uh, groups of people who are talking together a lot anyway, right? And so they emerge, you know, they're, if you look at all the, the um, social network studies on discussion networks, the people that you talk about with important matters generally are also the people that you talk about with political matters specifically. And so the idea is that those are the people, those, those are your people, right? Whether that's your family group, whether that's your group of friends, um, whether those are your coworkers, um, I think in a polarized context, I think that's also sort of your people in terms of your political group, right? And so your desire, if you're talking with people who share your views, you want to be affiliating um, with that identity, with that label. So it's it's about that um, group connection, the the sense to which your identity is tied to being part of the group with which you're talking politics. Excellent. Um, Okay, next question was asked in the chat, so I will read it out loud slowly, Jamie. Uh, it's from Anna Lil. What would be the explanation for the heart rate responses to issue disagreement? Could it be because it is experienced as more unexpected and that would trigger threats? Partisan disagreement could also be more, expect, uh, be more expected because participants know that there is this, this us versus them response. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so we we picked issues uh, of the the way the conversation was structured. The students um, introduced themselves, talked about something to give us a baseline measurement. I think their favorite class. Then they they announced their partisanship, and then they talked about these four issues. And two of the issues were kind of campus related. Two of the issues were were fairly non salient uh, political issues, one of which we thought was more partisan, had to do with immigration policy, and one of which was did not cross, you know, was cross-cutting to partisan identities. It was about standardized testing policy uh, in the country. And so we were trying to leverage this idea of like when you know, you know, we set it up so that you knew your discussion partners political identity and that there were topics that you could expect to disagree on versus ones that may be less expected. Um, but we just did not, we didn't see different, we didn't see the magnitude of differences that we we thought we would. And again, this is probably a power issue. Um, my, my, there, yeah, very suggestive. This is not at all, uh, it is not a robust finding in the least, but there is some suggestive issue that the issue that was, that the students talked about that was most contentious was the immigration policy. So, you know, the closest to kind of a, a, a policy that would have lined up with their partisan identities. So, um, I think it's a great, I think your question is fantastic. I don't know that we have a, a clear answer on this, um, whether it is the the experience of, of disagreeing or sort of the unexpected nature of it. Um, I will say what's interesting is the, the amount of hedging that went into these conversations. So we had 
pre-treatment measures of the respondents' um, issue position preferences. And then we had what they actually said in the conversation, and then we measured their viewpoints afterwards. And even on paper, when the people disagreed with each other on the issue on paper, when you look at the transcript, they've totally moderated and hedged what they say about it. They are really trying to minimize the amount of expressed disagreement. So even on paper, the conversations that looked the most disagreeable um, were, were, were not audibly as disagreeable as they could have been. So it uh, doesn't answer your question directly, but, but kind of an interesting point. Excellent. Uh, there is a question from Christian People uh, in Amsterdam. Hi, um, I was wondering in the results that you showed um, where you looked at the heart, heartbeat of your participants and then you, where you introduced that they're going to have to have a discussion and you showed how that heartbeat um, increased compared to them watching videos. Um, I was wondering how much does it have to do with, with having a political discussion, but how much does it probably just has to do with that they have to do something active and that they move from a passive consumption of something towards thinking about an activity that they have to do something physically? Yeah, so um, we should test that, right? I mean, we should test. So they weren't, so the instructions were delivered in the same way that they were watching. It was just instructions on a screen, right? So they themselves weren't um, moving or changing. But if the idea is that cognitively knowing that they're about to have to engage in action. Um, and so that, that would be, um, you know, very, I think, helpful to have included an additional condition there to try and get at how much of this is just the brain gearing up for an interaction versus um, not. Now, we are able to get some leverage on it, I think, in that you do see this separation between the 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 anticipated agreeable conversations, the anticipated disagreeable conversations. Um, and so uh, I don't know what we would have seen if if we had then had not anticipated non-political agreeable versus disagreeable. Um, you know, I think for those of you who have done this work, there's always the trade-off between wanting to design the most robust experiment possible and then recognizing that, uh, you know, they're, they're, these are such costly experiments to run in terms of researcher time that, that it can be hard to get enough data to, to test everything you want. But I think you're right. I think that's one of those questions that we need to push on further. Jamie, I have a, I have another question for you. Um, so, you you start you start to talk and and about this sort of that we live through this hyperpolarized uh, at times, right? Especially in the U.S., uh, but but uh, you know uh, some Western European countries are are desperately trying to catch up. Um, so. Uh, some of the, the data you collected this is uh, earlier in a time that you might look at now is like a more peaceful and quiet time in US politics than what the periods you've lived through in the, the, the subsequent years. Mm -hmm. If you would, would speculate about replicating the effects in contemporary times, would you expect similar effects, bigger effects? And if, and, and if so, um, what does this imply for the, the, the conclusion of, of the book that you draw? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's interesting when we, we started this uh, and the questions we were asking, we look back now to the way we were writing questions in 2012, 2013, and, and it's 
tame, right? What seemed like intense partisan conflict back then now just looks like the good old days in, in politics. Um, and, and so I, I think it would be much worse. I mean, none of our data uh, really captures the, the Trump era. The latest data that we have are the summer of 2017. And so that is just at, you know after those first six tumultuous months. Um, I think it's a lot worse. I think it's, it's I, and I think the other thing that has really changed is kind of this, this meta awareness, right? I mean, this, I, I feel like in the US, the topic of polarization is on the agenda. People are now aware that, that this exists and, and it has seeped so deeply into our fabric. I mean, the, the biggest, you know, not, not the biggest issue, but, um, one of the most recent big manifestations of polarization at our local school board meetings that have just evolved into these shouting matches about critical race theory all over the country. And so I think what people thought was once contained at the national politics level has seeped more and more into day-to-day -day lives. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing I would have loved to have to have jumped on if if things had worked differently is, I mean, think about the role of masks, the, the politicization of masks in the US in terms of signaling identity and how that structures our expectations. I mean, over the past year and a half, you know, we, I'm, uh, I bought a house on March 9th, 2020 uh, that needed a lot of work. So it's been a crazy year and a half. And we've had a lot of people come over to the house to try to do work. And, and my gut instinct when they approach the house, are they wearing a mask or not, right? And so this thing, this, this, you know, this visible, quick identification to understand what someone's political views might be, uh, I think has to have changed this detection process as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm not optimistic that it has gotten any better. I think that the changes over the past five years have probably made a lot of these effects even worse. Mm. I, and I'm just giving myself the freedom to ask a follow-up question. So, so uh, if you so some some of this in in terms of the digital media consumption, people talk a lot about the selective exposure uh, uh, presence or not. But what you seem to focus on is, is, is this interpersonal talk, right? And and so, do you think that same worry about selection is is there? Or is that actually something because we actually have still a relative high number of that we meet people that we disagree with and have conversations with that that actually uh, the selections concerns are not so big in a sense that that you know at the school board or at the daycare center or at the, the gym you meet people who are different yeah. and have these conversations while online you can choose to 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 or to not live in your own environment so i actually think people are on on average are likely to encounter more diversity of opinions in their online networks than they are in their offline networks i i think what's going on in the offline world is that even even if it's mostly subconscious uh, the sort of norms of social nicety in American culture suggests that you shouldn't engage in disagreeable uh, conversations with people. And I think as we've sorted, 
And, and as we show that people are increasingly able to recognize their, their political outgroup before conversation even happens, people are taking that off-road more and more. They're selecting out. Now, there will always be people who love to talk about politics, right? Or who are so disconnected from the political system, they're not picking up on cues. And so they inadvertently get involved in these conversations. But um, we know that people's face-to-face -face core political discussions are much more homophilous than the online versions of those networks. Um, and I think as our society sorts socially and polarization gets worse, we're going to end up with that, that, you know, we're already seeing evidence that people are more and more likely to be marrying people who share their mm -hmm. viewpoints, right? And occupations, I think, are starting to sort. Um, you know, the I think people are developing stereotypes about the political views of particular occupations, right? And they're not incorrect. Like the police in the United States are overwhelmingly conservative, right? And so I think occupationally, you might start um, seeing this as well. And so that cues that were not informative in the past might become informative moving forward. It also reflects, it's just a bit my me search, but this sort of when I noticed that somebody disagrees with me on my views on COVID, I, I, try, I steer the conversation away immediately. It's like, I don't, I'm not in, into having this discussion with you. Yeah, uh, exactly. And if you need to maintain that relationship, you're, you, you don't want to know, right? I'd rather no, just not no, know I, that you're, you know, an anti-vaxxer. I just okay. can't deal with that, so. Yeah. Uh, Gijs has another question and uh, that will make that the last question for today. Thanks. And uh, I think one of the reasons why this is such an exciting book is that, that, that I think it's, you know, one of the first political science projects that uses this, this physiological data. Uh, and, to, and to measure arousal, you use both heart rate and, and, and skin conductance. And, 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 and maybe I'm interested in your advice, if you would do this all over again, would you include these measures? Would you choose one over the other? What is your, uh, what is your takeaway? Yeah, so we got more traction with heart rate, but I think heart rate can mean more things, changes in heart rate can mean more things than can changes in EDA. So um, I, that's a hard question. The other thing we grappled with is um, getting back to your question about sort of valence and unidirection, you know, right? Like we thought about doing EMG, but then we thought about having people have conversations with one another with a bunch of electrodes hooked to their face, right? And how is that gonna change the nature of the interaction? And so, um, you know, I think it depends what you're prioritizing, trying to get at. What I like about heart rate is that even if there's some um, theoretical ambiguity about what we're capturing, most people can very much relate to the idea of their heart racing about something, right? And so I think that even if um, from the measurement point of view, you have to be more vague about what you're capturing, it does map better to what people might actually be experiencing during these conversations. And, and it could be, a, it's a, it is certainly an easier to explain and understand concept about what variables, what permutations are causing, you know, varying levels of heart rate response. Excellent, thank you. Uh, uh, I'm gonna, uh, but 
thank you, Jamie, for uh, for uh, giving this uh, this excellent uh, talk and, no, and, and sharing sharing uh, some of this uh, this fantastic work with us. And uh, I can't wait uh, to order the book. Uh, if I talk as much about this book as I talk about the Frenemies book, that's uh, <laughs> it's going to be a competitor. Uh, uh, I'm going to give the floor to Jojanneke, but first, once more, uh, thank Maike. Uh, for uh, all the work she put in organizing this meeting, uh, that is uh, that is uh, that is really nice. And uh, I hope, Mike, that next uh, meeting you uh, are actually able to also present your work uh, and share that with uh, with us. Uh, and I'm handing over the floor to Jojanneke van der Toorn to for the final words and uh, uh, of goodbye for today. Yeah, that's all I have to say too. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we will be organizing another one. Uh, as I said, hopefully in person, then it will be in the spring. Do let us know if you want to give a talk in this Dutch political psychology meeting, uh, or if you have any announcements, uh, things to share with our mailing list. We're happy to distribute the message for you. So Maike, thank you again for putting this together for us. And uh, we hope to see you all next time. Bye. Yes.